Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into the topics you're all talking about in football. I'm Ian McGarry and with me as always is Duncan Castles. We start with the situation at Arsenal, where of course Ferry Lundberg won his first game of his interim tenure uh, against West Ham on Monday evening. Um, We told you on the Transfer Window podcast that Patrick Vieira was a major candidate uh, to replace Unai Emery at uh, the Emirates. And Duncan, I believe you've got some inside information regarding the mechanics of how this recruitment process is working. Yeah, look, the information I have is that um, Vieira's candidacy for that position is being championed by Edu, um, Arsenal's technical director, and obviously a former teammate of Vieira's. Um, He was part of and played alongside Vieira in Arsenal's last Premier League title winning side. Um, Has known him for a long time period of time and is pushing the other people on a, on a four-man committee that um, the Cronkey family have tasked with uh, drawing up a long list of candidates for the job and recommending who um, should be promoted to that job to them before the Cronkies sign off on a decision. And I think Josh Cronkey, it's very clear that he's going to be part of that, a big part of that decision-making process. He's now you know, speaking on record um, about uh, the sacking of Unai Emery, the the several weeks they'd been considering that and and considering replacements, and uh, you know even going as far as recommending to the interim Freddie Lundberg that um, that he fix things by getting a uh, putting a smile on the face of the players again. But Edu's in there as technical director. You have the head of football, Raul Sanyehi, who I think is more influential here and had been actively working. Um, to line up replacements for some time before Unai Emery was actually dismissed. You have the managing director, um, Vinay Venkatesham, and the chief contract negotiator, Hus Fami, um, are the four-man committee, and then the Cronkies on top of that. Um, the Vieira's candidacy, as we as we talked about in the podcast, it's interesting because he's he's 42 now, um, he's quite experienced as a coach. He moved into uh, coaching and development after retiring as a player um, and did that with Manchester City back in 2011. Um, he, he was then moved to uh, the Abu Dhabi Own Club's Major League Soccer franchise, New York City, in 2016 to become a head coach in his own right. Um, did a reasonable job there. Um, it, in his second year at New York City, he took uh, the club to the second place finish in the the combined um, MLS seasonal standings um, and then went to Nice um, and is in his second season there um, operating under new owners, um, the Radcliffe family who came in in the summer. Um, and I, I think has done reasonably well. And he's been praised for the, the football that they are, have been playing under him without taking them high up the division. Um, 
obviously if you're looking for someone who understands Arsenal as a football club and has um, a status with the support um, and a, a kind of a personality to come in and take a charge of what is a very difficult job at present it's quite hard to look beyond Vieira from that perspective um, you know he ticks all of those boxes the question mark is what level can he attain as a coach of a side with big financial resources um, very significant players in their squad a big wage bill strong characters in the team and lots of problems to solve and I mean Ian you you know Patrick Vieira well from um, your time reporting on him when he was in the peak of his playing career how do you feel Vieira would be in that kind of position because we are talking about a job which comes with a lot of expectation and a lot of problems to solve well first of all I don't think um Patrick would be under any kind of uh, misrepresentation or misunderstandings about how difficult a job it will be, Duncan. Um, at the same time, uh, he is one of the iconic Arsenal captains of this century, um, along with Tony Adams, I would suggest. And his status at the club uh, would certainly um, give him time and uh, affection from what is a very, very sniffy uh, support uh, they can be at the Emirates. We know they can be very critical, uh, both of the team and their manager. Um, I think Vieira will be afforded more time for the fact that he has the reputation uh, of being an Arsenal man. I also, uh, from staying in touch with him uh, since his playing career ended as well and his various different jobs, um, I believe that he has definitely got the ambition and appetite to take on the size of the challenge. The one difficulty I would foresee for Patrick would be, yes, he wants to be Arsenal manager one day, but is this the right time for him to take it? Now, if we look at two similar examples um, in Frank Lampard going to Chelsea after one year's coaching experience at Derby County, and of course Ole Gunnar Solskjaer going in to replace Jose Mourinho on an interim basis initially, but then given the job, you've got two club legends doing similar things, and both with relative uh, measures of success. Um, Lampard probably inherited the better squad, um, but has lost three out of his last four Premier League games, and you know that's something that Frank's not used to doing, is losing football matches. Um, Interestingly, when he and Patrick were competing against each other as players, there was an incredible amount of respect between the two of them because um, the recognition um, for you know how good and how uh, you know, their standard was very much world class. Um, so I think it's timing for Vieira. Interesting that when uh, asked in his uh, Nice press conference uh, last weekend about any interest or would he want to go to Arsenal? He very politely and intelligently answered the question without saying that he had any, had any interest, only that that he was uh, he felt the weight of their current situation. Um, and, you know, as someone who has Arsenal in his heart, that was not unmoving to him. So it would be a very big draw, the same way as it was for Solskjaer, the same as it is for Lampard. Um, and I think it would be a very good appointment as well. I'm slightly concerned um, that the recruitment committee and the Kronkers, both Stan and Son Josh, um, having 
been looking at sacking Emery for such, such uh, a while. Well, a few weeks is a long time in football. Didn't have someone already lined up. In these circumstances, especially at big clubs, the normal process is before you sack the manager because you know you're going to, you've already spoken to candidates and gotten the positive answers you, you need uh, in order to replace uh, one with another. Um, clearly, that hasn't worked for them. Um, for one reason or another, I think we have said on the podcast that um, Max Allegri was one of the people of approach, but he is obviously waiting for a better opportunity. So it'll be interesting. Um, I'd throw one more name in there, and that was uh, that would be Carlo Ancelotti, who uh, is enduring a sort of difficult period with the uh, president of uh, Napoli, which is not unusual for any coach at Napoli to be uh, in uh, friction or at least. Uh, some kind of uh, disagreement with her, um, De Laurentiis, and who openly said uh, in his Champions League uh, pre-match press conference yesterday that if the project was not working for either the club or himself, then he had no fear of moving. Now, we know that Carlo Ancelotti uh, loves living in London. He retains a house in London um, and I think does see himself coming back to the Premier League after his spell with Chelsea. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, uh, I think Pazuvia would probably be the right appointment, but then again, Carlo Ancelotti certainly would be a very interesting one um, for Arsenal. Interesting you mention Ancelotti because I was reading um, one of his books at the weekend and he was talking about the importance of club identity and club brand and how he, when he took jobs on, he spent a lot of time talking to people in senior positions at the club to find out how they wanted football played um, and how they wanted uh, to appeal to their supporters and meet those expectations. And and he specifically mentioned that one of the ways clubs can achieve that is not simply to avoid managers who have particular characteristics. Um, And he mentioned Jose Mourinho in that light, um, talking about how Real Madrid had sacrificed their uh, brand identity because they needed to beat Barcelona when they hired uh, Mourinho. Also mentioned Sir Alex Ferguson and said you take a manager like Sir Alex Ferguson, you know um, that you have to adhere to his way of playing football and, and he, like Mourinho, defi- is defined by trying to win games. But he said that um, that's one of the reasons why clubs often appoint former players um, and players who have a long history at that club is because they know the identity, having been a big part of the identity, and it and you don't get the there's far less possibility of a non-match when you take a former player, and um, and obviously with Vieira you have that option for Arsenal, and the question of course is, do Arsenal, do the Cronkies want to go back to the Wenger era and the identity of that football because. Quite a lot of what they, of the work they did um, on dismissing Wenger was to change the hierarchy of the club and change the operational um, tiers of the club to try and build something different and something which they felt would be more effective. And it's early days; we're only in the second season, but but certainly it hasn't been effective in terms of results so far. Very true, and. Um... I go back to the uh, conversation we had, Duncan, with uh, Graham Hunter on uh, the last uh, edition of the pod, where we talked about um, the model being top four only 
uh, and you just being safe and taking the money in to pay off the stadium, etc. And of course, that's similar model to what the Glazers are operating in Manchester United since Ferguson left. So as long as the club is making money, then American owners seem to be quite happy not to have silverware in, in the cabinet. So it's um, something that any manager coming in is going to have to contend with with regards to the environment and changing uh, the environment um, in order to get the club back into contention for major owners. The victors at the uh, London Stadium, of course, meant that West Ham have gone one point above the relegation zone. It's our information on the pod that the club have been sounding out other coaches with regards to would they be interested in taking the job at West Ham with uh, Manuel Pellegrini seemingly in the dark about what his future holds for him. And um, we understand that Chris Hutton, the former Brighton Hove Albion manager, uh, is one of the names in the frame to replace Pellegrini. Hutton, of course, uh, very, very experienced coach and uh, got Brighton into the Premier League, kept him there for two seasons. And of course, should West Ham go down, then he would be the perfect guy you would reckon to um, be in position to get them promoted again. Well, I'm pretty sure that's not what the co-owners of the club are looking at, Duncan. They seem to me to be uh, quite demanding taskmasters. Uh, and I, I, I would imagine that keeping the club up is definitely a priority rather than looking beyond that. Yes, and... Um... It's interesting that you, you mentioned West Ham because in in that uh, another section of the the Ancelotti book I was reading, he was talking about how the brand of um, clubs can be important to managers getting sacked, um, and sometimes the the brand can be so strong that they they uh, dis- dismiss managers who don't fit that brand. And um, mentioned that bizarrely, West Ham uh, United had this. Um, idea of the way they should be playing the West Ham way um, which in his observation of, of watching West Ham um, as a, a manager in the Premier League that the West Ham way seemed to be not winning um, because they uh, they were happy to sack Sam Allardyce when he was uh, producing probably the best results of um, of the this era of ownership um, precisely because he didn't fit um, this this uh, strong um brand that West Ham have and their, their fans um, often talk about and, and I think it, he, he was right in that I remember the um, the aggression towards Allardyce um, for playing very much Allardyce style football, pragmatic um, don't waste a lot of time on the ball um, get goals and defend uh, intelligently um, and I, I think I, I would have a concern there with Chris Hutton because uh, well, I think Chris Hutton's a very good manager, um, has got an excellent track record in Premier League football, also in Championship football. He is extremely pragmatic in the in the way he plays and is a sort out the defence first, um, don't take risks, set a points target, an achievable points target and um, play to get those points across the course of the season. Uh, and, um, and it is a defensive first approach. And I think... I would be confident if Hutton was to take over there that he would keep the team up. But I'd also have concerns that, um, you know, within a year's time, once they have their, their place secured again in the Premier League and you start a new season and the, the owners spend on players again, 
the demands on him would return to that kind of situation we, we saw with Allardyce and we've seen with other West Ham managers um, that he'd do more than just survive. And, and then I, I would question whether Hewton would, would, um, would work well at West Ham United in the longer term. Uh, yeah, I think a concern for Chris Hewton would be um, twofold. One, his very long association with Tottenham Hotspur, who, of course, West Ham and Spurs have a very fierce rivalry. Um, so therefore, unlike Solskjaer, Lampard or Vieira, as we already discussed, um, he wouldn't be afforded that much time by fans if it didn't go very well. And also, yeah, I agree the style of football is very pragmatic and would not be uh, the kind that certainly West Ham fans uh, would, would be very, very keen on. Although, I have to say, Duncan, you know, having worked um, in English football for 20 years... I still don't know where the West Ham way is. Um, I mean, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, it might, as well, it might as well be the road to the stadium, West Ham way, because I can't see any evidence of it anywhere. I mean, the only the last bit of proper swashbuckle in a West Ham shirt was you have to go back to Paolo Di Canio. Yeah, and, and I thought the uh, the deadpan way in which Carlo uh, described the West Ham way as, as seeming to be not winning was... Uh, has to be said a fairly good summary another little line on Chris Hutton as well uh, Duncan um, I understand that he was approached uh, by Watford um, before of course they appointed Nigel Pearson um, and his concern and the reason why it didn't go very far is because he uh, when speaking uh, with uh, Watford he asked about well and, and you would if you be interviewed by Watford what are my job security uh, what was what are my prospects of job security? And was told, well, you've seen the club's record of sacking managers, so that's probably not one we can answer. And Chris is a is a sort of pragmatic man in his career as well as he is on the football field, and didn't find that answer uh, very reassuring, and therefore said thank you, but no thank you. And I've since heard from someone else who represented a coach uh, who was contacted, said exactly the same thing. Um, thank you, but no thanks, because I, I value my career trajectory too much to come in and be sacked after two months to be replaced by the guy that you sacked to get me in. <laughs> so that's happened with Harvey Gracia. Interestingly, Duncan, uh, when I was uh, rating Frank Lampard's autobiography with him, we did discuss the West Ham way, and Frank was very unsure what it was either, and he was brought up in West Ham way. <laughs> Even he didn't know. And speaking of Frank... Um, some news on Nathan Ake, who has been linked with a move back to Stamford Bridge uh, under Lampard. Uh, also some interest from Manchester City. However, we can confirm that Chelsea do have a buyback clause in the contract uh, when they sold uh, the Dutch international defender to Bournemouth. Um, I'm informed that it's not quite £40 million, although it could rise to that. It's slightly less than £40 million. Um, also told that Ake uh, is to have a second scan on the hamstring injury he suffered last weekend. But the initial prognosis is that he could be out for six to eight weeks, which would, of course, mean that he would be probably not playing until after the January window closes. But clearly with Chelsea's transfer ban lifted, Duncan um, it is a position that Lampard wants to strengthen. He's some very young players like Tomori, uh, in there just now. Christensen hasn't really quite worked out. Uh, I think Ake would bring a sense of calm uh, and an organisation probably to Chelsea's uh, back centre-back pairing. 
Look, I think Ake is a very solid Premier League defender. I'm not sure he's going to be a top Champions League defender. I think he's he's skillful on the ball and he does the basic stuff pretty well. Um, but I think physically somewhat lacking and just yeah, not quite top tier. As an improvement on what they have, I can very much understand why they would uh, they'd be thinking about doing that. And at a price of less than £40 million, pounds, um, given the, the current uh, inflated valuations of centre-backs in the Premier League, um, still a very young player, um, would count as homegrown, although that's no longer an issue for Chelsea, the way Lampard is uh, organising his squad. Um, there are lots of positives to it. I agree with you. Um, Andreas Christensen, I don't see um, as being the answer. He's he's been in and around that Chelsea team for a long time now. He looks like he should be a you know a top modern centre back. He's he's tall um, and comfortable on the ball, but he is not at all decisive or aggressive in his play, uh, and very error prone. I think I think. I, I'm not sure I've watched the game of Christensen against the top team in which he hasn't made some kind of error. Um, so I can understand why Lampard is thinking um, if I have the opportunity to get this player in and the management of the club are on board with spending money on that player, I'll take him and, and fit him into the system. And um, it's definitely a weak point in the team at the moment. And I think it, it's... There's an additional weakness there because they have Kepa in goals, who, um, again, not physically dominant, um, again, somewhat error-prone, um, and th- they need to tighten up in those areas if they're going to m- continue on that sort of progress path that Lampard has them on. Um and secure the Champions League place that, um, that that they've been looking very good um, to achieve this season. But um, now with Tottenham um, on a strong uh, run of results um, after changing manager, uh, and you know a number of clubs concertina behind them, um, there's a bit more pressure on Chelsea not to uh, not to slip up in the next few weeks and allow that. Um, good early season position that they've built um, to disappear. And of course, interesting, Duncan, that the transfer ban was lifted, as we predicted in the podcast a few weeks ago. Um, Chelsea's lawyers claiming that the ban uh, was um, disproportionate, given that Manchester City received no ban for very similar offences and indeed procedures as well. And also um, from the football point of view, um, a priority, uh, as we've talked about for Chelsea um, now in this window, is a striker to back up Tammy Abraham, who has taken on board almost all of the pressure of goals for Chelsea and indeed delivered as well. Yeah, um, look, I saw Frank Lampard talking about uh, the ban being lifted and, and joking that it, jokingly saying it was actually quite nice having the transfer ban uh, when he first took over the job because it took a lot of problems away for him, which, of course, is something we discussed in the the podcast a few weeks ago, that um, it simplified that process of arriving at Chelsea and that he could focus entirely on the squad he had, um, didn't have the option to, to, to bring players in, didn't need to pressure the board to spend money, didn't need to spend his time working 
um, on his own assessments of players to come in and also analysing the club's assessments of, of which players to, to, to come in. But he also said that um, the opportunity to spend now was something that was appealing to him. It should be taken um, when you have the opportunity to improve a squad on the market. It's an important part of the manager's job and having had the time he's had to assess the quality of players he's worked with, he's got a better idea of what he needs. And um, also quite keen to emphasise the amount of money that had been taken by Chelsea in the summer transfer window and the amount of money there was to play with. Uh, you know, the figure of £150 million was mentioned and uh, Lampard said, uh, well, it's, it's a bit above that in, in my calculation. So I think we see the start of Lampard um, saying to Roman Abramovich, I've done my part of the bargain so far. Um, the window's open for us again. Let me have some money to um, target uh, on this team and take it to um, even greater heights. I seem to remember one Antonio Conte saying the very same thing after he won the title in his first season at Chelsea, Duncan, and uh, very sort of unceremoniously dumped out the door after another 12 months where he complained bitterly that he wasn't getting the players that he wanted or had targeted, etc. I think um, Lampard um, may well find that the pressure that he thinks he might be under, or sorry, he felt was not on his shoulders by not buying. You might find that it's still quite the case, given the amount of influence Marina Gronovskaya has in Chelsea transfer business. So um, perhaps he won't be under as much pressure as he suspects he might be. So the uh, biggest game of last weekend, of course, was the Manchester Derby. Manchester United going to the home of their city rivals. And, well, I'd say routing them, but that would be wrong in terms of the scoreline flattered probably United in some ways, especially when some of the decisions uh, you look at that. And, um, Duncan, you were quite... um, uh, Were you amused, entertained by Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, uh, his attitude after the game, after, of course, beating Spurs and then... United uh, over the course of four days. No, look, you have to you have to give all credit to Solskjaer for what he achieved in in that uh, pair of games. You know, he's beaten Jose Mourinho and beaten Pep Guardiola back to back in the space of three days, uh, with a day less preparation time than his opponents for both games, um, and under huge pressure. Um, over his future, his status at the club, his his record in terms of results. So, um, you know, he he's achieved two two performances in which he had the players absolutely focused on what they needed to do. He had a, a, a an obvious tactical plan for both games. Um, he did. I think he set up Manchester United to play against City in the only way it was realistically. Um, possible for them to get a result against City, which was to defend deep and very aggressively and, and, and in a very committed fashion. We saw a lot of defenders throwing their body um, in the area to block City's shots, which you know they're going to have. You know they're going to create chances inside the area because that's they will pass the ball into your area and they will set up those sort of 10-yard shots. He had his team ready to do that and also to, when they got the ball, to get it very quickly to their quick front players and take advantage of City um, being out of position um, and take advantage of City. I think 
it's quite clear that their defensive game is suffering, not just because of the absence of key personnel at the back, having to use Fernandinho as a centre-back rather than a holding midfielder. Rodri still learning how to tactically foul, as he's uh, admitted himself in an interview. But also they're not pressing in the way that they we are used to Manchester City pressing that aggressive attack on opponents when the ball turns over and the opponent's half is absent. There were very few tactical fouls from Manchester City in that match. And as we've pointed out on the podcast from the you know the basically the very beginning of Guardiola's success with Manchester City, that technique of pressing the opposition when the ball turns over, trying to get it back immediately. And if if they don't get it back, fouling the opposition far from goal to allow their players, the City players, to get back behind the ball and to avoid um, being exposed on the counter-attack has been fundamental to the way Guardiola's teams play. And they're not doing that at the moment. And Solskjaer identified that and took advantage of it. Um, they scored early, um, another penalty, um, very well converted by Rashford, who's missed a few penalties this season. So there was a lot of pressure on that. And then taking advantage of of another defensive error. um, And again, an excellent finish from Anthony Martial to make it 2-1. So, you know, Solskjaer did everything he could in that game and and he deserves um, plaudits for producing two performances of of really high level by Manchester United standards, recent standards, in key games, as I say, with the with the disadvantage of having a day's less preparation for um, for both of those matches. I do think, and you know, perspective is something which often gets lost in the hyperbole of football. But um, when watching the game and watching uh, again afterwards, uh, Duncan watching highlights of it. Um, First of all, um, a, most, a lot of the majority of United's uh, dangerous attacking came down their right-hand side where Angelino is the third-choice left-back, uh, obviously missing Zinchenko, Mendy uh, as well. <clears throat> and then if you're missing your best defender, Amerit Laporte, your best striker, one of the best strikers in the world, Sergio Aguero, and you, as you uh, mentioned, your best defensive midfielder is having to play in centre-back, then... <sighs> I can kind of feel a little bit sorry for Guardiola because he is coaching with one hand tied behind his back, uh, given the shuffling around he's having to do. Now, I suppose the argument could be, well, given how expensively assembled his squad is, he should be able to put up with that. But I think when it's your best players, then you you are going to struggle. And certainly this season so far, look much less confident. Even the, even their best players look much less confident in certain games this season uh, than they did last season. Well, we, we mentioned uh, in our preview of the game that um, that this was a it was a game that Manchester United could win by playing that way, by getting the first goal and by scoring on the counter attack. It's obvious what City's weaknesses are at present. We mentioned that the that, that City have. have suffered because of the disruption to their pre-season and they've suffered more muscular injuries because of the way they had to um, reshuffle the pre-season because of that um, the tour uh, move to China and two delayed flights and um, having to go through with commercial activities when they should have been involved in training time over there that you know the the issues are significant 
Um, but as you say, City have the resources um, greater uh, than any team ever. You know, we're not just talking about the most expensive squad in the Premier League. We're talking about the most expensive squad in the history of football. And what it's shown this season is that the, you can only play Guardiola's way whenever things uh, at its top level. They have to be on it. They can't afford mistakes. They have to have that tactical fouling pressing game working to be able to commit lots of bodies into the opposition half and not get caught out in some games. And in the Premier League now, with the season that we're seeing from Liverpool, season we saw from Liverpool, Manchester City last year, um, you can't afford many defeats. It's simple as that. So you play this high-risk system and it stops functioning. You get caught out. And then mentally, yeah, to play that way is harder because you have to risk on the ball. You have to take chances on the ball. And um, once you start losing points playing that way, then the confidence goes. And we, we see that from Pep Guardiola. You know, he's, we, we, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago that he basically conceded the league to Liverpool in his statement. Um, after this game, he, he's gone further than conceding the league. He's talking about um, Manchester City not being on the top tier of European football anymore. So he, he said... Manchester United have the quality to defend and the quality to attack on the counter-attack and you have to accept that. That is the level we face against Liverpool, Manchester United, Barcelona, Real Madrid, Juventus. They are the teams we have to face and the reality is maybe we are not able now to compete with them. Maybe we need to live that as a club to improve, to accept the reality now and improve. And you know that's quite a stark message from Guardiola. I mean, he, he's using Manchester United as an example of a team that he's saying that the reality is we're maybe not able to compete with them now. I mean, let's remember where Manchester United are. They, yes, they've beaten Tottenham. Yes, they've just beaten Manchester City. But they are fifth in the Premier League. They are playing Europa League this season. They're not playing in the Champions League. They're not even vaguely on that level that uh, that uh, Guardiola is expected to perform its best in. They are 22 points behind Liverpool in the Premier League. That's where Manchester United are at present. They have, um, since Ole Gunnar Solskjaer became manager uh, on a permanent basis, they've won just one third of the Premier League games. So that comparison from... Uh, Guardiola to Manchester United I think is bizarre um, Liverpool yes Liverpool are clearly ahead of City at, at present um, Barcelona Real Madrid they also have problems just now and so do Juventus who aren't top of uh, Serie A but I think I think what you have to notice in that Guardiola comment is he's, he's putting the pressure back on the club he's saying um, either you deal with how we are with the resources you gave me, um, not bringing in a centre-back in the summer when we'd lost Vincent Company, um, telling me that uh, you can't have one in January either um, when I'm expected to win the Champions League, or you change that um, organisation of the club and we go back to um, the first two seasons I had as Manchester City manager where I said an area of the team needed improving and record 
fees were spent on improving it, record amounts were spent on one department of the team. You know, we, we look at that second summer after Guardiola had failed uh, to win the Premier League and, and was some distance off the pace. And it was a new goalkeeper to replace the expensive goalkeeper I'd bought from Barcelona the previous summer, three new fullbacks, um, and then a uh, another uh, centre-back at one of the highest fees ever for a centre-back brought in during that season. Um, I think I think that's the the underlying message there from Guardiola, and the, and the psychology of it's interesting that he's prepared to to give up on the Premier League season so early um, with the resources that have been granted to him, and um, and with the track record those players have, but as I started this, the, the, the issue with, with Guardiola's football is such, it's so fine-tuned to being dominant on the ball that if little parts of it break, uh, the whole system breaks away. And, and we, we saw that. We've seen that at Bayern Munich in the Champions League. We saw how he failed to get there and was picked off by the better teams in the more important matches in the Champions League. And we've seen it with Manchester City in the Champions League when they were riding on a on a wave of dominant domestic form. So it's going to be interesting to see how they, they do in the knockout stages of this season where the focus will be primarily on that competition and whether he can come up with a solution that um, is more effective in the Champions League than the way he's been trying to play so far um, in his time at the club. It's an interesting dichotomy here, I think, Duncan, in that we know that Guardiola is a control freak. Um, he needs to have everything done his way or don't bother. And therefore, when things don't go his way or things um, go against the way he wants or expects them to, he can f- find himself in, in a funk, basically. He, his mood deteriorates. We've seen it a lot of times. We've seen it over the last couple of weeks. Um, he almost sulks um, about you know certain things, etc., etc., and then make statements like he has done regarding the Premier League title and uh, competing with elite clubs. But surely, as one of the elite and best-paid coaches in the world, it's his job to fix those things, not to moan about them. Yeah, it is his job, but let's look at the history of Pep Guardiola as a coach. Um, he inherited arguably the most talented squad of, of players, technical players that has ever been assembled in football at Barcelona and went on and won everything and did it um, in a fashion that was spellbinding in, in many ways, um, received huge plaudits, then had his choice of clubs, could have gone to any club in Europe, had all of the top clubs in England trying to hire him, um, chose to go to Bayern Munich because he felt that um, there was a better opportunity to win the Champions League there, that they had a a better um, youth production system, that essentially the the German title would be pretty easy to win and he could focus on the Champions League. Got a lot of money to spend, failed to um, achieve what he had been asked to achieve, which was win the Champions League there. Then he gets an even... absolutely unprecedented setup at Manchester City where they had rebuilt the club um, before hiring him in order to hire him, brought the technical director he trusted from Barcelona in 
brought uh, the chief executive from Barcelona in to build a structure and to convince Guardiola to come, spent more money or were buying players for him before he had arrived as coach and spent more money um, after he arrived uh, on further strengthening that squad than has ever been spent before. Um, and essentially, if, you, if you're Guardiola and you come into these situations, you're used to getting what you want. You, that's That's been his history in football for the last seven, eight years. It's I, I choose where I want to go on my conditions with wonderful resources, with the best or very close to the best of footballers um, to play the style of football that, to be fair, the clubs have, have hired him um, to uh, implement. So he's not used to adversity is, is kind of the conclusion from that. He's used to winning the domestic title with relative ease um, and winning it almost every season that he's been a coach. Uh, and he's used to getting what he wants in terms of players and being allowed to get rid of players when he wants to get rid of them. Um, and this season is a, is a new problem for him uh, in terms of his experience of English football and and. You know, possibly of European football is probably the hardest season he's faced. He's certainly not been out of the title race um, this early in a season before. Um, he's never had to concede or effectively concede defeat in the title race before Christmas, um, before this one. And, and I think he's using that uh, as a weapon to try and get more of what he wants and what he feels he needs to improve the City squad. Um to have a go at the Champions League and and potentially get the Premier League title back from Liverpool next season. We sh we should also say he has been they, they they have been unfortunate when it comes to refereeing decisions and you know they, they had that VAR call against Tottenham um, the medical port one which nobody saw and clearly wasn't an intentional handball and um, cost them two points early in the season. They had. The you know the Schrödinger's handball law as we described it in the key game against Liverpool at nil nil, where they could have had a penalty and Liverpool end up going up the other end and scoring the the goal's opening goal and the game's opening goal and uh, and changing the dimension of that match so that you know that's a six pointer game, and then at the weekend the he has VAR intervening to give a penalty to Manchester United that the referee didn't think was a penalty. Um, which certain people have argued was a questionable decision. Um, and then VAR, uh, Michael Oliver in this case, seeing four separate incidences of the ball hitting a Manchester United defender's hand or arm in the box and not giving any of those as a penalty. And, you know, in my view, at least one of those was a credible um, penalty call. Um, and these things make a big difference in games and uh, you can understand frustration of Guardiola when the VAR decisions are consistently going against his team in a season of fine margins. It, it was going to be fine margins if they were going to uh, to beat Liverpool and, and retain uh, their Premier League title and those fine margins have all gone against and, uh, and, it, and the result is you have this position of, well, we, we can't win it this season, let's concentrate on other stuff. 
Which brings me nicely, Duncan. Thank you very much to my villain of the last few days. And of course, it is said Michael Oliver sitting in his office outside of Heathrow, telling the world that when Fred takes his hand towards the ball, as the ball is crossed in the Manchester Derby, that indeed is not a penalty, despite the fact he was around three metres away at the time. Plenty of time to think about it. Remember, the reaction time is set to be half a second. So that's my villain, Duncan. Who's your hero? Uh, I think my hero of the week is Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. I think he is the only option this week because, as I said, beating Jose Mourinho, beating Pep Guardiola in the space of three days when under the pressure he's been under and on the run of results he has been on, um, it's uh, pretty much as good as it gets. And um, I, I see Solskjaer has done an interview um, or talked to Norwegian TV after the match and um, seems pretty bullish um, off, off the back of those results. They said, um, if we can keep these boys injury free, we will take lots of points and we're going to reinforce the squad. It's physically tough to play football the way I want to play football, but we are on our way to become as robust as I want and need. These boys have the right attitude. They have the belief. They are boys that I want to keep going forward. Um, that's why they are here right now. So he uh, clearly feels he's turned the corner and uh, I think he, he deserves to um, to enjoy his moment, uh, his moments of success. Well, there you have it. Um, the second uh, greatest moment of all is Gunnar Solskjaer's career after that night in Barcelona <laughs> in '99, not beating Spurs in Manchester City in four days, but getting Duncan Castle's hero of the weekend. Uh, on Wednesday's podcast, of course, it's your questions answered. If you have any questions about everything we've spoken about today, then please. Tweet us at Transfer Podcast or at Duncan Castles at Garbo SJ. If you want to talk about anything else whatsoever, you know we're open for all your questions, so please do. To continue the debate after the podcast, then just go to the same Twitter handles. And of course, we have our other social media accounts, which is at Transfer Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. We look forward to uh, well, we look forward to coming back to you again with our your questions answered on Wednesday. Uh, that's all for now. Thanks for listening.